Welcome to another episode of Ed's Up, sponsored by the Southern Early Childhood Association. Ed's Up is a podcast all about children and those that care for them. Hosted by Dr. Melody Musgrove and Dr. Kathy Grace with the Graduate Center for the Study of Early Learning at the University of Mississippi. Thank you for joining us on Ed's Up today. We have a great interview scheduled with an author who has done a lot of work around young children, both in the classroom, and I'm going to let her tell about her her past, but she has done two books, one, Use Your Words, and the other one, Choose Your Words, and both of them are available from Amazon, and you can order them, and I imagine after you hear this interview, you will be right on the money to get those books sent to your home or to your child care center or your school classroom. She's a very wise lady, and uh, she's going to share some of that wisdom with us. Her uh, her name is Carol Mooney, and uh, she is going to give us a little bit of information about herself and uh, her family. And so, Carol, so nice to have you with us today. Well, thank you. I'm delighted to be here. If you would, just spend a couple of minutes telling us about yourself and the career choices that you've made, how you became interested in working with young children and those who teach them. And uh, then we'll talk a little bit about how you came to write the books. All right. I come from a long family of teachers, and I come from a very verbal family. So words have always been a very big deal and sometimes a big mistake and sometimes a curiosity, especially to the small children listening. So at a fairly early age, I started giving a fair amount of thought to that. Why were words so confusing to me? And I realized fairly quickly to lots of other children as well. I've worked in education as a preschool and kindergarten teacher, an elementary school teacher, and a college instructor for about 40 years and um, enjoyed each of those ages a, a great deal and learned so much from the people I work with and the children I work with. It was actually my son who made me start thinking about children and language when I came home from a baby shower that friends had given for me. And my husband told me with great chuckles how our son had answered the phone, which he was just beginning to do, but in a most grown up way, he was thrilled for the privilege to be able to do that. And his dad had apparently been saying to him, well, mom's not gonna be home, you won't see her till tomorrow. Her friends are giving her a shower. And when the phone rang later, after he'd heard this several times, my husband heard her son say very grown up way, no, I'm sorry, she can't come to the phone. Her friends have taken her out to give her a bath. <laughs> and so it occurred to me that these kinds of things happen to children all the time and that we tend to chuckle, you know, it, those of you who have been watching the scene of adults and children talking for enough years would remember the places like Reader's Digest used to send parents checks for $50 if they could send in a story about their child and words that they had said that the readers would find amusing. And it's important, and I don't want to be gloomy, but I think it's important 
important, especially for those of us who work with children, to realize that here and there, something that we might consider cute, funny, might be, but that as a general rule, if we're laughing when children are talking and they're being serious, that that does have a long time effect on them. So particularly when we're training teachers, elementary or preschool, and parents, we, we want to help with what does it mean to really get to the bottom of what your child is trying to say? Well, I think that all of us can relate to a similar experience uh, if we're parents or grandparents or aunts or good friends who have been around young children. So I think that that is uh, certainly relevant today. And uh, it was several years ago and it will be several years from now because that's uh, children are going to take things literally, as we may have found out, those of us that work in early childhood, particularly. The book that you have written, and it, the book that I'm referring to is Use Your Words, has some very straightforward, very easy to understand guidance for parents as well as for teachers. Can you tell us a little bit about where the thought came with regard to your teaching that led you to write this book? Because you mentioned you were in the classroom a good bit and in, in other capacities. Uh, did you see a need for this? Did you see things going on in classrooms that you thought we need to do a better job in terms of training teachers? What was sort of behind this? I think you just answered your own question. I think that the that in the classroom, I saw teachers doing what they thought they should be doing and what certainly I learned in classes about how to be a teacher that there was a pressure to always have an answer, which we don't always have to do. Questions are a wonderful thing to leave right out there sometimes that teachers don't always have the answer. And I should find a better way of phrasing that because the answer is part of the problem. The answer is the assumption that is fairly common, particularly in our country, in the United States, that there is a way for people to do things. And that if two ways surface, then one way must be the right way and the other one must be the wrong way. And the assumptions that we bring often go all the way back to when we were small children, and it's been a typical thing to think that the way your family did thing is the way for things to be done. A, a fabulous way to see this with teachers is to sit at a workshop with a group and have them discuss process or etiquette, if you will, for using a slide at school. And I have seen teachers just practically go to the mat, practically questioning the ethical premise that is behind someone saying it's okay for a child to go down the slide backwards, or it's okay for children to go down the slide in a chain, or it's okay sometimes to go down in a chain and other times not to. It depends on how many teachers are in the yard. Lots of discussion, but that premise that we should find a right answer. And I think teachers struggle with that a lot. 
Well, you give some terrific basic guidelines in your book that I think would be uh, suitable for parents as well as teachers. And uh, so, you know, if you would like to just share a few with us, I have a few of my favorites that I was going to ask you to elaborate on a little bit. Uh, And I'll start with, with one. Remember the body language, tone of voice, and facial expression affects the message you deliver. And the reason that resonates with me is that my own son, who is now 40 years old, used to say to me, you have your school teacher voice, or why do you have your mean face? And I took that to mean he knew I was not happy. And so that translated to him is that I had my mean face. So could you talk a little bit about uh, how important the tone, body language, and all of that you just have listed here, how important that is in delivering the message or the guidance that you could offer to both the, to both the parent and the teacher? I uh, believe that stories help children a lot and that they also help adults a lot. And as you bring up that situation, the mean face or the teacher face, if you will, makes me think of a a school teacher that I visited a few years ago and she was standing and I was standing not too far away. And there was a little boy that was just wanting to be close to her. And he kept trying to initiate a conversation and it wasn't going anywhere. And finally he said to her, teacher, do you like this job? Do you like being here? And she looked startled for a moment. And then she looked at him and said, well, yes, of course. And the little boy was was just honest, sincere and said, well, then you should tell your face, you know, because her presentation was not saying, sure, come tell me a joke, step on my foot, do whatever. You know, she was seeming distant and the little boy didn't quite know the words for approaching her on that. But I, I was very struck by it. And I think that we do it as parents. There's never a holiday gathering where my four grown children don't bring up some story about, and then Carol took on the face, you know, meaning that was mom getting close to the end of her rope and they knew it. And I think that we do, we do a lot of that. And I think some of it sometimes is okay, but like everything else, we really need to think about the fact that we are meaning makers for children and how is our tone of voice, our facial expression, our body language, how is that matching with what it is that we're really trying to accomplish? And it's something that we need to think about. And I, I'm not sure it's something we grow into. I think we have to think about it and continue to think about it because uh, if we grow into it, I think I probably should have it down pat by now and my grandchildren will ask me things and I really have to stop and think about how I'm going to respond to what it is they're trying to understand. Well, and that brings up the point about really listening, uh, which is another whole conversation around the depth of of how we listen today and uh, whether or not we've had so much information thrown at us that we've started to uh, filter some of it, which maybe would be good in some cases, but not in other cases. And that leads me to this one, again, one that I think is so critical for us to talk a little bit about, because I see this in classrooms a lot. 
Uh, and the question that but the guideline that you mentioned is don't ask a question or offer a choice when there isn't one. And so many times, and you give this example, at the end of a directive, a teacher will say, it's cleanup time, okay? Mm-hmm. When it's not an okay question, it is a statement. And I, I think that that's worth a little bit of, of discussion uh, on our part. So could you spend a little time on the don't ask a question and okay is a question <laughs> in yes. the context of how you phrase it? And that one okay turns a directive, a statement about what needs to be done that is not a choice into a choice. And so it's confusing for children. And I think that there was a period of time when we were encouraged not to discourage little children by saying no or being negative. There was a period of time when early childhood classrooms would have teachers take a list of statements that were expressed in a negative way and turn them around and put them in the positive. And certainly there's lots of need for that, but it doesn't help to make a statement that needs to be done. Your bath is ready. Come here and I'll help you get in. You know, well, no, I think I'll go outside and ride my trike. Well, no, this isn't a choice. And I think that we have not spend enough time thinking about how confusing that is for children and how okay changes a directive into an offer. Well, shall we have some lunch? Okay, well, if we're going to have some lunch and if you're in a program where you have 18 children and a teacher and an assistant teacher and everyone needs to sit down now, well, you need to come and find your chair or I can help you to sit where we want you to be because it isn't a choice. Well, I like the way that you've also given people the next step so that if a child doesn't want to do something that it is uh, an absolute that they must, like eat their lunch, then you give them uh, some guidance as to, well, let's find your chair or let's make sure that you're over here by Joe or whatever that the, the next step is to move them toward what the end goal is, which is to eat lunch. And uh, I think sometimes teachers will just say, no, we have to eat lunch now. And they don't follow up with that next step, which helps the child to understand that the teacher is going to give them some help to get there to the lunch table, but they're going to have to get to the lunch table. So that I appreciate the fact that you stuck in a, an extra step there after it's clarified. The, the, here's what you need to do. Mm-hmm. No, and in certainly in New England, getting ready to go outside is a big issue because for a while, it, it's no longer a licensing regulation, but for a while, um, if it was 18 degrees or above, you would have the children outside for half an hour. Wow. And children with snow pants, boots, mittens could take that whole period of time that it takes to get dressed and go outside and be outside for two minutes and it's time to come back in. So the teachers who are working with children in cold climate areas are prone to saying things like, you need to get your jacket on or I can come and help you with it. There you go. It isn't a choice of what would you like to go outside because everyone is going outside. 
trying to get children to eat lunch is always a challenge. It's difficult because everyone is different. And the coat also, the choice can be one that if the teachers make it, there are going to be children that are way too warm outside. And then if they choose themselves to take it off, generally speaking, they're going to get cold and put it back on. But frequently teachers will say, it's cold out. We're all going to wear our coats. So that as teachers trying to make meaning for children and trying to present um, reality as diverse, which it is that what is hot to some people isn't hot to other people, that there are choices to be made, but we need to be able to make sure that we're being clear. And I think that sometimes that doesn't happen. And I think sometimes it's because teachers feel they're supposed to say it's cold out. Everyone needs to wear a jacket. You know, I was the mother of one of those children that would just be sweating. You know, so if I knew that they were going on a field trip where they were going to run and they were going to climb apple trees, and I would make sure her coat was the lightest thing she had because I knew that she'd be making enough motion and keeping herself warm that she didn't need a hot coat, but that that choice was often not given at school. It's very, it's very complex, the things we're trying to deal with. One other, uh, one other statement that you made, and I think that it is certainly, I, I think that today we need to have some more discussions around this one thing. Use praise in moderation and only when it is sincere and truly called for. And uh, many times that I've been in classrooms, a teacher will glance at a paper, good job, Joe, now go on down the road. And then Susie, that's a good job, go on down the road. And so I think this speaks to some practice, maybe not just at school, but also at home. So talk to us a little bit about the moderation of praise and then it's being sincere. That is such a big, big area of discussion. We could spend an hour on it. I think that, again, teachers feel like they're supposed to go up and down and make children feel good about what they're doing. But to, to, to walk up and down saying, good job, good job, good job, is not sincere. And, and it isn't that difficult if we, as Professionals talk about this, if in teachers' colleges we talk about this, if in staff meetings we talk about this, there are so many ways that we can say, what made you choose purple for that? Or you really want a lot of yellow here. Or you look pleased with yourself, which is important in terms of children owning their process and their feeling good about what they're doing as opposed to looking for external praise for what they're doing. And I think that for a long time, we've not given enough thought to that um, where children were concerned and, and did tend to just randomly say, nice job, nice job, nice job. And I, I think that one of the cardinal rules for us as teachers in terms of being meaning makers for children is not to get a, a quick catchy phrase and then use it over and over and over. And then everyone in the, in the center or everyone in the primary building just picks up and starts saying 
those words and they become meaningless as opposed to a child owning her own process and taking joy in what she's doing for herself. Well, we could talk about this book forever and a day. And I do want to bring up one other section that you were, were so good in writing that has to do with developing thinking skills and the questions and the conversations that teachers have. And this has been a problem we've experienced with uh, teachers in, in working with them to try to improve their skills, not just in terms of the developing the thinking skill part, but the relationships with children, the relationship skills, so that there's actually a conversation and not just a series of yes and no questions that often seems to, to be a part of the classroom. And you give excellent, excellent tips on uh, things that you shouldn't do, as well as the things you should do. One of the things that I just really appreciated was when you talk about starting a conversation with, what do you know about this? If you're going to study birds, well, what do you know about birds already? So that this opens up the door and you get an insight into children who have had uh, experience. Maybe they live out in the, the country and there's more birds in their area than somebody who lives in the middle of town where there's not a lot of birds. But you help us to think through um, the conversation issues rather than just a yes or no, like you report to me. Uh, do you know this? Yes or no? Is it sunny? Yes or no? And so can you talk a little bit about the and you talk about meaning makers? I really like that your term in that. How can teachers and parents Think about conversations with children rather than more of a, I guess you would say, reporting time. How was school today? You know, good. Okay. Good. That's, that's check that off. And so, you know, so talk to us a little bit about that. I, that is one of my favorite points of discussion with teachers because we've all heard the message in one place or another over our years and even in our years of training to be teachers that it's, all right to ask questions that we already know the answer to. And questions are supposed to be a means of unlocking information that we don't already know. And a good rule of thumb for parents and for teachers is not to continue asking questions that we already know the answer to. I have a favorite story of that came from my friend, Lillian Katz, who said that she was standing in a classroom listening one afternoon, and she heard a child who was being continually asked by the teacher, well, Jeffrey, what color is your shirt today? What color are your shoes? What color? And about the fourth question of what color is this and that, the little boy looked up at the teacher and said, wow. They let you be the teacher here and you don't know your colors yet? You know, and Lillian said, this is a good example. We, if we listen to what goes on around us, we can learn a lot because a question is supposed to be looking for more information. What made you want to make your picture about dinosaurs? What made you want to do an easel painting today instead of working watercolors, I noticed that your teachers put both of them out, that we're asking the child to think of her own or his own process 
not to define it for them, but to try to help them to think, well, why am I doing this? And what will I do with it? And where will I go with it? And sometimes the answer is, I'm not really sure. I don't know. And sometimes the answer is the story that a child would really like to tell if someone would stop and listen and ask a question that they don't already know the answer to. And I think one of the the realities is that we're on a time schedule when we're at school or when we're under a certain, we have to go so-and-so this place, that place, the other place. And so if we expect a conversation that could take longer than if it's just a quick yes or no. And so therefore we forget about the importance of the, of the child and the conversation because we're so caught up about the time that we have to cover so much material in the classroom or we have to do this, that, or the other at home. And so we really don't have time for conversation. And that's back to our lifestyle and how we have to maybe be intentional, as you said early on, to to make the time to engage in conversation. And that so many children in our world today don't have anyone to to have conversations with. And that that should take on a, a new meaning uh, with, with teachers. I'm so glad you brought that up. And I, I agree with you completely that we, we do have many, many things we have to do in a classroom. And, and the pressures on teachers can depend on how many children are there, how many adults are there, how much help do they have, what's going on in the classroom today. But when... A child is interested, and I'm going to say this fairly slowly because there's when and ifs that go with it. It's okay to say to a child, you seem really interested in that. But you know, right now we're about 10 minutes from going outside. And I feel like I'm not going to sit down and really pay attention to what you have to say and to what you'd like to know. So I'm going to write this note and you can watch me. We'll go over and we'll put it on the bulletin board on my schedule. And that will remind me to come back when I do have time, because I don't want to pretend like I'm paying attention when I'm wondering if we're really going to get out the door on time. And I think that sometimes we feel afraid as teachers to say, I can't do that right now. But the important thing is to string around our finger that we can't put it off and then not go back to it. That our responsibility is to take that child's interest and say, what you're saying is important to me and I really want to listen. And I'm afraid that I'm not going to be really listening and you deserve for me to really listen. So let's put this book and this note over here, and that will remind us both that we still have to do this. So I've tried over the years to do a lot of that, and it helped me because all of us have many things going on in the classroom, and we we don't want to say I'm listening and then not really listen. Well, I hate to say this, but speaking of time, we have just about overspent our uh, time in I don't want to take advantage of you and your time. You've been so kind to speak with us today. And we could have, as you said, two or three more hours of conversation about this. But I do want to remind everybody, Carol has two books. 
Carol Mooney, Use Your Words, Choose Your Words, and they can be purchased through Amazon. And uh, I would say to young teachers or teachers new to the field, this is a must for you. And uh, new parents would probably find a, a lot of good information in there as well. So, Carol, thank you again for being with us. And maybe sometime when you are out traveling, you'll visit us down in Mississippi since you're in New Hampshire. And uh, <laughs> we'll, we'll give you some good Southern food uh, if you're able to, to visit us at any point in time. So thank you again. And we really appreciate it. That would be lovely. Thank you, Kathy. Today's Lit Bit is by the amazing Maya Angelou, and it's entitled Human Family from FamilyFriendPoems.com. At this time when our nation is so divided about many things, it's important to remember that we are part of one family, the human family. We all live and die. We laugh and cry. We all have concerns about ourselves, about our families, about those around us. And, you know, that's true no matter where in this world we live. And I think it's good to be reminded that we are much more alike than we are different. This is Human Family by Maya Angelou from FamilyFriendPoems.com. I note the obvious differences in the human family. Some of us are serious. Some thrive on comedy. Some declare their lives are lived as true profundity, and others claim they really live the real reality. The variety of our skin tones can confuse, bemuse, delight, brown and pink and beige and purple, tan and blue and white. I've sailed upon the seven seas and stopped in every land. I've seen the wonders of the world, not yet one common man. I know 10,000 women called Jane and Mary Jane, but I've not seen any two who really were the same. Mirror twins are different, although their features jibe, and lovers think quite different thoughts when lying side by side. We love and lose in China. We weep on England's moors and laugh and moan in Guinea and thrive on Spanish shores. We seek success in Finland and born and die in Maine. In minor ways we differ, in major we're the same. I note the obvious differences between each sort and type, but we are more alike, my friends, than we are unalike. We are more alike, my friends, than we are unalike. We are more alike, my friends, than we are unalike. That's Human Family by Maya Angelou from FamilyFriendPoems.com. Thank you for joining us today for Ed's Up. We're always interested in stories about children and those who care for them. If you'd like to share your story, email us at edsup at olemiss.edu. Until next time, bye-bye. Ed's Up is a production of the Graduate Center for the Study of Early Learning at the University of Mississippi. The views and opinions of podcast participants are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily represent those of the university, its employees, or any affiliated entity.